0: This episode contains descriptions of sexual assault, murder and mutilation and barbaric acts. It certainly isn't suitable for children and listener caution is advised. To true Crime France. Today we are going back down to the south of France to the town of Perpignan. Perpignan is situated in the department of Pyrénées-Orientales. To the south is the beautiful Pyrenees mountain chain. To the west, the massif of Corbire, and to the east, the Mediterranean Sea. Perpignan is about thirteen kilometers from the sea, and about twenty-five kilometers from the Spanish border. The town and its suburbs has a population of about 200,000. Salvador Dali claimed that the Perpignan train station was the centre of the universe and painted Le Mystique de la Garde de Perpignan or Pop-Up, yes, yes, pompier after claiming that it fell into an ecstasy cosmogenic stronger than any other it ever felt before. Sunday, September 24, 1995 17-year-old Tatiana Andujar had told her parents that she was spending the weekend with her friends. The next day, Monday, she had college and she promised the parents that she'd be back in time for tea that night. She didn't turn up for the evening meal. The hours passed and night fell, but Tatiana still hadn't arrived. Her parents stayed up all night, waiting and worrying. The next morning, they pushed open the door of the local gendarmerie and we were met with the phrase used by police internationally in the 70s, 80s and 90s. She's probably just run away. She'll be back. Her parents reluctantly envisaged the possibility, until they found out that she'd made it back to Perpignan. Tatiana was pretty and headstrong, but she'd changed in recent months. She stopped going to college, and she started going to rave parties, She'd even got a tattoo of a devil on her backside. She'd lied to them about where she was that weekend. She wasn't with her friends. She'd hitchhiked up to Toulouse to party. She was seen on the train back to Perpignan, which arrived at 7.30 on Sunday night. Then nothing. The police told them to wait, but her parents didn't and got the media involved. A local journalist, Corinne Sabot decided to investigate and found the last person to have been seen with her. Tatiana had voyaged with a young man, a lance corporal in the army. They'd exchanged numbers and said goodbye in front of the train station and no one had seen Tatiana from that point onwards. She'd gone down the avenue henri Ribert towards the Figueres Café to which I lived back home. Most students at that time in the 1990s Hitch stops in the area. I think that danger wasn't quite as obvious as it was in the United States, though. Later, France discovered more than one killer uh, whose victims were hitchhikers. The Cafe Figueres was open at the time uh, she was hitchhiking, but nobody remembered anyone hitching a ride that night. Tatiana had disappeared between the station and the cafe somewhere along the avenue Henri ribere Weeks passed and still no news. The police finally opened an investigation into the kidnapping and the investigative judge went back over the witness statements one by one, in vain. One and a half years after Tatiana's disappearance, in May of 1997, the case was closed and the search for Tatiana was abandoned. Her mother, marie jose Garcia, said in an interview on Fait-Entre l'Accusé that she felt abandoned and alone and she didn't understand the reasoning behind the decision. She continued to make posters and search for her daughter with the help from volunteers of an organisation that she created and named Tatiana. On the 21st of December 1997, the body of a young woman was found on a small parcel of wasteland in the centre of Perpignan. A local man had spotted the cadaver when he opened the shutters that morning and called the police. The young woman had been stabbed and mutilated. She was rapidly identified. Her name was Mokhtaria Shaib. She was a student and 19 years old. She was identified by the director of the hostel where she'd been staying a few months before she'd gone missing. The body had been dragged across the ground, lifting up her clothes and exposing her mutilated lower body. There was no blood at the scene and no blood in her body. The autopsy would show that she'd been stabbed a number of times in the heart. Her breasts and genitals had been removed with near surgical precision. Probably with a long scalpel or a long, thin-bladed knife, like a legio. All of the investigators involved were extremely disturbed and traumatized by this murder. Years later, they'd still have a look of shock on their faces when they talked about it, obviously suffering from PTSD. Moktaria was studying sociology. She'd distanced herself from her family to be able to continue studying and had chosen to live in a hostel up to her majority at 18 years old. She was pretty and lively. She had good friends and a clean living lifestyle. She was described as a very serious, uh, respected the hostel's rules, and had no behavioural problems whatsoever. The police did doors to doors in the neighbourhood, and they found nothing. They then retraced Moktaria's timeline that evening. She'd been at a friend's house and left at around 10.30pm, heading home to a brand new room in the student residence at the university. She left on foot. Her friend lived near the train station, and logically she would have taken the same route that Tatiana had taken. There is one main road that goes from the station and leads to the students' residences, the Georges-Cortelin Road that changes its name to Henri Ribère Road, halfway down. It's along this road that the Pass of Wasteland, where Moctaria was found, was situated. The police thought that she'd been kidnapped, murdered and mutilated, then brought back to the place she was taken from. An investigation for assassination, torture and barbaric cats began. were persuaded that the person that had done this must have been a doctor or a surgeon. Rapidly, a man appeared in the police's sights. He lived about 200 meters from the wasteland. It was a Peruvian national and he was called Andres Avelino Palomino Barrios. He was 49 years old and he was an intern at Perpignan Hospital. The only references this man could produce was a photocopy of a Peruvian diploma. Nonetheless, he'd worked in 18 different French hospitals since the early 1980s, from Narbonne up to Amiens. Every time he'd been sacked after a couple of months, his old workmates were unanimous in their opinions of his incompetence. He'd also been sacked for stealing surgical material in 1995, and he possessed a criminal record for stealing and fraud. He was the perfect suspect, on January the 22nd, 1998, after a 20-day surveillance operation, the police decide to arrest him in the early hours of the morning. Blood was found in his tiny studio. It was visible on the walls and in the sink. Bingo, the police thought. Barrios was placed in detention and charged with assassination, acts of torture and barbarity. He denied everything, claiming he was in Spain when the murder was committed. The media, the public and the procurer had already judged him guilty. Newspaper headlines named and shamed him in big, bold print. Except there was nothing to tie him to the murder. Searches of his van and studio came up empty. The samples of blood taken from the walls and in the sink was identified as blood, but chicken blood. Barrios was biding his time in prison when a third girl disappeared. Before I talk about the third disappearance... Three months beforehand and three months after the murder of Moctaria, Sabrina, another pretty brunette, was attacked in front of her home, Belfort, one kilometer away from the station. A neighbour heard frantic screaming as she was preparing her evening meal. She ran outside and saw in a doorway across the road, someone's feet protruding from the dark recess. Another shape was knelt down and the arm was going up and down. She ran over and saw that the man had a knife. There was blood everywhere. The man ran off, and the neighbour could not give the slightest description afterwards. She was in total shock. Sabrina lived, though extremely traumatised and extremely scarred. She told the police that while waiting under the porch for her boyfriend, she saw a man staggering towards her, visibly drunk. The man said that it was his birthday and that he just had a party at his workplace in St Charles, an industrial zone near Perpignan. The drunk stumbled and when Sabrina helped him back up, he pointed to the doorway, telling her that's where he lived. She accompanied him to the building and he started fumbling in his pocket. She thought he was looking for the keys, but he pulled out a knife and stabbed her twice, once just underneath the breast, and a second in the belly button, and lit the knife up to her sternum. He looked into her eyes and told her, I'm going to kill you. Sabrina gave a description. He wasn't very tall. He had light brown hair, blue piercing eyes, and rotten front teeth. This aggression should have started ringing alarm bells for the police, but sadly, it slipped under the radar. Moctaria's murder was being handled by the PG of Perpignan, the Judiciary Police, but Sabrina's aggression went to the Public Security Police, another branch completely, not even in the same building. Sabrina's assault didn't even get an investigation worthy of that name, so the investigative judge that was in charge of Moctaria's case wouldn't have been told about it. This was a horrible mischance for the investigation. Less than a year later, Sabrina's case will be closed, the reason being that the aggressor was unknown. I'm sure you can hear my eyes rolling there. You don't look, you don't find, obviously. They had so much information, they didn't even try. Two and a half years after Tatiana's disappearance and six months after Moctaria's murder, Marie-Hélène González vanished. Marie-Hélène was a beautiful brunette with green eyes. She was 22 years old. June the 16th, 1998. Marie-Hélène was a seasonal worker in Argelés-sur-Mer, 22 kilometers south of Perpignan. She still lived with her parents, just outside Perpignan. That afternoon one of her friends dropped her off at the Argelis train station, where she supposedly took the train back to Perpignan. She was never seen alive again. Her parents were bothered and missing the next morning. The police start the same investigation as they did for Moktalia. They traced the footsteps of friends of witnesses. She'd arrived in Perpignan at nine PM, then she probably started to hitch a lift. That was what she usually did. She probably took the first on the right when she came out of the station, the Georges Cortellin Road, went down to the crossroads where the Café Figueres was, the exact same route that Tatiana had taken two and a half years earlier. Ten days later, a ragged bone man was wandering around the motorway exit ramp, not far from the Perpignan tollgate, when he came across a pile of rubbish, he moved a discarded carpet and underneath discovered a body. The body, or what was left of it, was that of marie Ellen González. Her head and hands were missing and she'd been disemboweled. Straight away the pl- police made the link with Moctaria. Perpignan was scared. Three women had disappeared, two of them found murdered and mutilated. Young brunettes. Young women, especially brunettes, were scared to go out alone. The police tried to get a definitive link between the two murders, but it wasn't obvious. The mutilations on Marie-Hélène's body were radically different from those carried out on Moctaria. They were done savagely and with seemingly no knowledge of human anatomy. But some things were the same. They were both bloodless and naked. They'd both been killed elsewhere, or so the police thought, and the killer had tried to hide their identity. The press and the police began to think they were dealing with a serial killer. Tatiana's mother refused to believe her daughter was a victim of this killer. They hadn't found her body, and that was a big difference. The police did make a connection, though, which meant that Tatiana's case was reopened, Because the police was persuaded that the same killer was responsible, it couldn't have been Barrios as he was under lock and key when Marie-Hélène was murdered. The judge had to release him. Barrios was kept under judiciary control for for a while before being definitively cleared two years later. Andres Avellino Palomino Barrios himself met with a violent end. In 2003, He'd been expelled from France for practising illegal medicine. He'd gone to Spain, where in 2009 he was arrested and charged with the same thing. While awaiting trial, he was found murdered in his flat in Valence. He'd been strangled. He'd rented a flat with a Bolivian couple, who alerted the police when they smelt a foul odour coming from his room. There was no forced entry, and the police suspected that he was killed by somebody he knew. I can find no information on whether the Spanish police ever found the killer. now in the middle of 1998 the police have the train station under close watch 24 hours a day 7 days a week they're waiting for a man with a car a maniac someone with skills of persuasion and some knowledge of anatomy the apartments and businesses close to the station were searched the owners questioned non-sexual predators in the region were arrested and interrogated Nothing came of any of this. In January 1999, firemen were called to a small bushfire in a field just off the main road, 25 kilometres from Perpignan. There they discovered a skull and some bones and they immediately thought of Marie-Hélène. Genetic tests would confirm that these remains did indeed belong to Marie-Hélène González. Nothing else of note was found in the field. Who had torn this skull here. And why and when. Another year passed. The police had interviewed over 2,000 people and had arrested 30 suspicious men, but they were still stumped. They even studied Dali's oeuvre for clues. He'd made Perpignan train station the centre of the universe, and many of his paintings contained depictions of decapitated and disemboweled women. They had nothing in the murders of Mokdaria and Mary Elena and Tatiana still hadn't been found four years after her disappearance. They didn't know if they were dealing with one, two or three killers. On February 10th, 2001 Fatima Idraou, 23 years old a beautiful brunette was reported missing by her brother and sister. She was last seen in Perpignan near the train station. The day before, the 9th, she had left the supermarket where she worked at 7pm. As she usually did, she started walking the two kilometres to her parents' apartment. Her family started to worry when she didn't arrive at the usual hour. She always told them if she wasn't coming straight home. They spent the night trying to contact her, with no luck. The police, when they saw the photo of Fatima felt straight away that she was another victim. She had the same physical profile as the other girls. A way home took her into the killer's hunting ground, along the main roads and up to the crossroads where the Café Figueres was. They did the same investigation as for the three other girls, with zeroed leads. Fatima was a serious young woman. She was working to pay for her studies. She didn't have a boyfriend... Uh, or not one that people knew about and the family and friends maintained that she hid nothing from them. Ten days after she vanished in the car park of a hypermarket three teenagers discovered a payslip belonging to Fatima a payslip for January 2001 that a boss had given her on the night she disappeared. They interviewed the manager of this hypermarket who told them that on the Friday the 9th of February He was closing the shop at 7pm and he thought he heard a woman screaming. He looked out and saw a light coloured car packed to the rear, more or less hidden in the shadows. The door of the car opened, he saw a woman's foot step out, then immediately the foot pulled back in and the door was closed. He didn't think much of it on the moment. There were always couples trying to snatch a quiet moment around here, but he wasn't a trusting man. He tried to make them move by flashing his car lights as he was leaving the car park thinking that they'd be disturbed enough to move on. He'd also taken down the first four letters of the number plate. The police found out that only eight cars in the department had these same four numbers and only one was a light coloured car. This car belonged to a certain Mark Delpeche. This was a solid lead. The police found that email and telephone calls had been exchanged between Fatima and Delpesh, the last one being on the 2nd of January. Matt Delpesh was a 34-year-old married father. He owned the bar The San Diego, a popular bar for the younger crowned in the centre of Perpignan. He didn't have a criminal record and lived in Cannes, about 11 kilometres from Perpignan. When the police found out that he owned a suspicious car seen in the parking lot, they wanted to speak to him, but he was at his parents-in-law's in in Merthed-Moselle, some 850 kilometres up north. That's where they went to arrest him on the 23rd of February, 14 days after Fatima had disappeared. The police entered the house and saw Delpeche trying to sneak out by the corridor. One of the officers stopped him and said, now isn't the time to talk about what happened. Just tell me where she is. Delpesh answered, I threw her off Cap Bia. Cat Bia is a rocky coast leading down to Spain. Matt Delpesh didn't have the profile of a killer. He was intelligent. People said he was gentle. But we all know that killers can be anyone, don't we? Delpesh, without any emotion, would tell investigators that he got to know Fatima during the year 2000 she was working at the checkout at Darty where he'd go often and he fell for her he then stated that they'd had an affair during December on February 9th he said that he'd come across her by chance and he'd offered her a lift Delpeche claimed that she started talking about his wife then started to threaten to reveal their affair to her he said he lost it and strangled her he supposedly took her body back to his house while his wife was away. He grabbed his diving equipment, took her out to Cap Bia, where he died with her until he let her sink into the sea. This was all false. Fatima's body was eventually found only 500 metres from where Delpech lived with his family, buried in sand on the banks of a pond. Fatima's sister that she didn't have an affair with this guy She'd know about it. The facts don't point to an affair either. More to a casual acquaintance. So, what was Delpech trying to hide? Fatima was found naked, but intact. She wasn't mutilated. The autopsy found that she'd been beaten around the head. Delpech then admitted to raping her, probably thinking that the autopsy would discover this. But, in reality, the body had been too long in water. When he found out that the autopsy couldn't prove the rape, he retracted the confession. The police found Delpeche to be elusive, secretive and manipulator. The investigators wanted to know if Fatima was his only victim. Was he a serial killer? The predator they'd been searching for since Tatiana's disappearance. They searched his house and found newspaper clippings about the murders. When asked why, He said that he was going to write a detective novel and that this was part of his research. On his computer, they found the draft of a book called, of all things, Tatiana. It told the story of a young woman hitchhiking who got abducted and murdered by an unknown man. The draft is written from the point of view of the killer and describes a chilling scenario. The next same scenario that the police thought had happened to Tatiana Did he start the book before or after she disappeared? Was it just a story or an autobiography? Tatiana's mother, while going through her daughter's things, found a tract for a party at the bar, the San Diego, his bar. The party had taken place the night of Tatiana's disappearance. The police were divided. Some thought he was the murderer of all the women. The others, no. The differences were too many. Alas, no concrete proof has ever been found to tie Delpeche to Tatiana's murder. Just some coincidences. Matt Delpeche's trial took place during June 2004. The families of all the victims were in the courtroom, hoping for some answer. He was found guilty of the kidnapping, rape and murder of Fatima Iraou and was sentenced to 30 years, with a minimum term of 20 years on the 18th. He's never admitted to having anything to do with the kidnapping of Tatiana. In 2017, he was again questioned about Tatiana, but no new information was gained from him. After my calculations, he should be able to ask for parole from this year. Trial of Marc Delpeche, the police were still at a loss as to the identity of the killer or killers of the other young women, Tatiana, Moktaria, and Marie Elena. In 2006, a skull was found in a nearby town, Boulou, situated on the Spanish French border. It was the skull of a young woman, and hopes were raised that they'd at last found Tatiana. Sadly, they couldn't extract enough DNA to test. I can't find anything recent on this discovery, so I don't know what happened to the skull, nor if they've tried more recent tests. In 2010, a man caught the attention. This was Esteban Reig. Reig had killed and dismembered his roommate in Lyon in the year 2000. He was caught as he was washing the blood-covered steps leading up, leading up to his shared apartment. Jean-Marie guessed the victim. His body parts were found in the bean bags deposited in the dustbins outside. Ray tried to claim the gay panic defence and that he became enraged when Jean-Marie made a pass at him. What interested the police was that he was living in Perpignan at the time of the murders of the young women. He used to hang around the train station and he drank at the cafe of Figueres. He'd arrived just one week before Moctaria was killed and then left immediately after Marie-Hélène went missing. Esteban Reich was a marginalised drug and alcohol addict. He was born in Valence, Spain, where he grew up in a very abusive household. He married, had four children and was sexually and physically violent towards his wife. She managed to get a protection order against him, and this is when he left for Perpignan. The mutilations he performed on his roommate were the same type as those found on Mortaria and Marie-Hélène, including the removal of the genitals. Règue committed suicide in prison in 2002 at the age of 47, so though the lead seemed good, it was too late to do anything about it. In 2003, the Central Office for the Repression of Violence Against Persons started to group information of crimes with the same elements. This program of Canadian origin is called SALVAC. There was, in 2013, another well-known crime that happened in Perpignan. Two women went missing, a mother and daughter, but the principal suspect in this case. Was found not to be in Perpignan at the time. I mean, to, I mean to cover this case in detail soon. Nothing came from the Selvac information. In 2010, with the advancing technology, police were hoping to discover DNA not yet found on the objects and samples taken from the victims. Many other al- analyses have been done before with no results. Reig's DNA wasn't found. They tested for another French serial killer's DNA, Michel Fournier, but his wasn't found either. In 2012 and 2013, new tests were done. One partial profile was found on the right shoe belonging to Moctaria. It could be used eventually um, to compare it to a suspect's profile. The shoe had been found one month after her body was discovered. A partial profile wasn't enough to compare to any of the two million profiles in the FNAG, but they can compare uh, the profile to one-on-one, for example, with all the people involved in the case and other crimes done with similar acts. All the earlier suspects were completely ruled out. Two new investigative judges were put in charge of the case, or cases. They went through everything again, but could find nothing new. Then the FBI created new software that would permit a partial DNA profile to be matched to a complete profile in large databases. This was their last chance. Nothing more could be done if this didn't work. So, 17 years after the murder of Mordaya, in the middle of October 2014, the FNAG found the match. It was 54-year-old Jacques Ranson. He'd been living in Perpignan since 1997, the year Monctaria was murdered. He's not tall. What left of his hair is light brown and his teeth are rotten. Ranson was a warehouse operator and was originally from Haïd in the summer. He had a long criminal record for mostly violence and sexual assault. He'd done eight years for rape, Uh, in Picardy the police knew his name he'd been questioned a few months after the murder of marie Ellen González back in 1998 he'd just been arrested for something else September 1998 a young woman was in a car on her way home when she noticed another car following her she started getting a bit scared understandable within the context of the time The car overtook her, pulled in front and forced her to stop. The driver then got out and came towards her with a knife in his hand but she'd locked the doors. She rang her father who arrived there pretty quickly and the man ran away but they managed to note the licence plate. So he was questioned about Marie-Hélène's murder and he denied everything and then he was just let go. It doesn't go any further, but he does get nine months for the assault. You can probably hear my eyes rolling about again. So, 17 years later, the police noticed that he'd arrived in Perpignan in 1997, a couple of months before Moctaria's murder. He'd just been released from prison. He was staying in the Hotel du Berry, just next to the station, he was charged with the murder of Magtaria, the only crime with any physical evidence. They didn't tell him this though, not yet. They gave him the softly, softly touch. Ransom talked a lot about his childhood. He claimed it was happy and he makes it out to be idyllic, but that really wasn't true. He grew up in a very poor family. His parents were illiterate. One of his old teachers said that one day he'd came to school in a pair of shorts that had been cut out of his father's trousers. He looked so silly that the whole class laughed at him. His parents would send him to school with a can of tin tin food. He had 13 brothers and sisters. They'd all been fostered out, but not him. Their house was a wooden shed and he slept in the only room with his parents, and he did so until he was 18. He had a number of companions and had four children. His last companion was 16 when she met him. He was 44. She gave an interview to BFM TV, where she told them about how he was a violent with her, and he tried to kill her with a knife. When one looks at his criminal past, one wonders why they didn't look closer in 1998. In 1991, he raped a woman and he got eight years. He was released in 1997 and then he moved to Perpignan. He got nine months in 1998 for the assault of the woman in the car. He was released in 1999 and moved back to the Somme, where he tried to strangle a 23-year-old woman. He's thinking that she's dead and he's putting her body in the boot of his car. She comes round and he gets caught. That's five years in prison. So he's released in 2003 and moves back to Perpignan, where he meets uh, his last companion. Uh, When she tries to leave him in 2012, he tried to kill her. And that's when his DNA was taken. Ronson explained that he gets impulsions when he sees a woman that he likes and that he has a knife to make himself feel more powerful and make the woman scared. He likes, quote, all women as long as they have big tits and they're young, unquote. He denied killing Moktaria. He couldn't explain his D- DNA on her shoe. The time is running out for investigators. Uh, they're 20 hours into the legal period of custody when they decide to take him to the train station, to the area where the women went missing and to where they found Moktaria's body. Ranson doesn't move, doesn't budge. The police are pessimistic as to being able to get a confession out of him. But during the last hours of custody, he gave it up and confessed to a female police officer. He saw Mactaria as she was passing in front of the wasteland. He had two knives with him and he forced her onto the wasteland and made her strip he killed her because she resisted him and she was screaming. He said that he didn't manage to rape her. As for the mutilations, he explained that he did it there under the light of the moon to get rid of any DNA traces, which is frankly absurd. He said that he then put the body parts in bags, took her shoes, dumped the bags in the drain behind the station, then went back to his hotel room which also means that he came with bin liners, prepared. The news was splashed all over the French television. Sabrina, the girl that was attacked in the doorway, she nearly fainted when she saw his face. She called the police and formally identified Jacques Ranson as a regressor in 1998. The police had really let her down. They never checked if anyone who worked in Saint-Charles Had recently celebrated a birthday, and Ransom lived just a few doors down from Sabrina. Inexcusable. Three months later, Marie Hélène would be dead. He confessed to Sabrina's attack three weeks later. The statute of limitations was well over in Sabrina's case, but based on recent jurisprudence in France, the justice system would override the statute. The jurisprudence is based on the serial aspect of a crime. If a crime has taken place as part of a series, the statute of limitations can no longer apply. So, in 2015, Ronson is charged with attempted murder of Sabrina. Now, they're going to go after him for Marie-Hélène's murder. He confessed to that straight away as well. They organised a reconstitution when Ransom was asked to act out what he'd done to Marie-Hélène. He threw himself on the dummy that was supposed to represent Marie-Hélène. He tore off the clothes that the dummy was wearing. He was acting aggressive and crazy. Some onlookers were persuaded that he was reliving the crime in his head. He strangled Marie-Hélène to stop her from screaming. He then dragged the body out of the car. He placed the hands and the head in bin bags, and just threw them out of the window while driving down the road. Then he said, quote, I remember getting my hair tangled in some thorns and seeing her feet sticking out from the path, but I'm sure I cut her feet off. This made the investigators think he was talking about another crime. There was no thorns at Marie-Hélène's killing scene. This other crime couldn't have been that of Tatiana. He was in prison in 1995 in Amiens. A fourth victim would be found in Perpignan. Four days after Ranson arrived in town, he assaulted an 18-year-old woman in September of 1997. He also confessed to that straight away. March the 5th, 2018, 20 years after the death of Mokhtaria, the trial opened in the Assizes court of Perpignan. There were large queues. The public wanted a glimpse of this human monster Had become part of the folklore of Perpignani. A balding, fat man wearing a bright orange t shirt like an American convict stooped into the dock. He was badly shaved and with a yellow, waxy pallor, stringy, greasy hair that strained to reach his shoulders. The expert psychiatrist in France, a trial isn't a trial without the experts. Say that Jack Ronson is just a psychopath, a real one. He had no regrets, no remorse, no guilt, no empathy, nothing. He was impulsive and he trivialized the acts that he'd done. They think that the mutilations were trophies. He tried to strangle his first victim when she was sixteen. The case was closed. During the trial, photos and videos of these beautiful and vibrant young women were projected to the court. They were everything he wasn't and could never be. The hate and the emotion from the victims' families was so strong that at one point, the brothers of Magdaria and Marie-Hélène jumped up and ran towards the dock. They tried grabbing Ransom through the tiny space in the plexiglass. No one really reacted, not even the chief judge, but then the police stepped in. Sabrina was the last witness. She was speaking for all of the victims. She spoke of how when she became pregnant, she had so many nightmares about how a scar that went from her numbril to her sternum would burst and how she'd been living a nightmare since that night. Jacques Ranson was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 22 years. But the story isn't finished yet. Isabelle Ménage, a vibrant, free soul, 20 years old and an early computer scientist, was found murdered on the edge of a forest near Amiens in the Somme in 1986. Her case was also closed in 1992, but, thanks to Maître Corinne Ehrman, a cold case specialist in France, the case was reopened in 2017. After Ranson was found guilty of the Perpignan murders, investigators went back and exhumed her body. There were too many coincidences. She was killed near to where Ranson lived at the time and had already committed two, two assaults. Isabel's had been mutilated. The second autopsy, 35 years after her death, proved that her genitals had been removed, the signature of Ranson. Ranson, when interrogated, said that Isabel was his first rape and murder. He strangled her, then cut off her breasts and genitals to get rid of any DNA. In 1986, DNA was certainly not in the forefront of anyone's mind, as it had only just been used in the Colin Pitchfork case in the UK for the first time ever. But in 2019, he took back his confession Nevertheless, he was sent before the Assizes Court of the Somme in June 2021. At the end of the trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in prison with a non-parole period of 20 years. In France, this sentence is served at the same time as the first one, but I doubt and really hope that this guy will never be released. Tatiana has never been found. Personally, I think that Marc Delpeche seems like a good suspect. Thank you for listening to True Crime France. Research, translations, writing and editing are all done by me, Deb. If you'd like to help out the podcast, you can rate and review or donate a glass of wine at buymeacoffee.com. You can find the link in the show notes. My sources for this episode are also linked in the show notes. Um, The next episode should be the 1st of August, though I have a lot of things going on in August. Uh, I will try to at least get uh, an episode out, a short one maybe. So, see you soon. Bye.